Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. So, oh boy, this is our ninth week in chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark and the second half, um, this is the second half of my teaching on the kangaroo court that tried Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, or, or was it a kangaroo court? Now, I hope you caught last week because I spent almost the entire time explaining the difference between the biblical Beit Din described in Mishnah Tractate Sanhedrin and the accompanying Gemara and Tosefta commentaries on that and the more informal Sanhedrin councils described by Josephus in his Antiquities. I'm going to teach this from the vantage point of Jewish historical scholar Alice Rivkin being correct that this was a stacked hearing put together by Caiaphas and Annas for the purpose of coming up with some sort of charge that they could bring before Pilate for the purpose of executing Yeshua, something they had no authority to do themselves. As high priest for over a decade at this point, Caiaphas most certainly had the authority to independently call such a hearing without preauthorization, but did not have the authority to convict or to do anything about a conviction. For that, or at least not in a capital case, for that he required Roman involvement. Now, the biggest controversy here, besides the exact nature of what this trial was, you know, personal counsel personal political counsel, rather, or Beit Din is exactly what triggered the blasphemy charge because it is not cut and dried. Anyone who says it is obviously hasn't really delved into the issue because all sorts of scholars and experts, Christians and Jews alike, come up with different answers and most of them are based on some very well-founded theories. Oh, hello. I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. 
Now, if you prefer written material, I have six years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-part, a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids, even though I think most of my readers are adults. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the links for all those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version. But you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. Just heads up when we do Matthew. I think we're going to do the the Christian Standard Bible because I'm really liking it after a scholar friend of mine uh, recommended it. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. This week we are in Mark 14 again. It is by far the longest chapter of Mark. All right, so just like last week, in addition to the uh, normal and ever-growing commentary list <laughs> that I keep adding to, and which costs money, you know, um, I'm going to be drawing heavily from three sources. The Kahati Commentary on Tractate Sanhedrin, which details legal procedures of the Supreme Court of Israel, the Beit Din, albeit from the vantage point of over 150 years later, and the excellent blasphemy and exaltation in Judaism, the charge against Jesus in Mark 14, verses 53 through 65 by Daryl L. Bach. And that is very, very scholarly, not right, not light reading, not for a beginner. And an article entitled Beit Din, um, Boile, um, Sanhedrin, a tragedy of errors uh, by the late great scholar Ellis Rivkin of Hebrew University. And I will link that article in the transcript as well as his scholar site where you can read more of his articles for free. Bach is going to be my main go-to service last week. Uh, last week it was Rivkin and Kahati. But this week it's the heavy hitter is uh, Bach with his blasphemy and exaltation in Judaism. All right, going back two weeks ago, Yeshua was arrested by a contingency sent um, by the chief priests, elders, and scribes. Um, and it consisted of an armed crowd carrying swords and clubs. Now, we know from John that some of these were Roman soldiers. And um, given that these were the weapons of choice for quelling riots, it's very likely that this was a um, joint effort instigated by the high priest Caiaphas and his father-in-law Annas under the auspices of putting down a rebellion. Um, some of the temple guard were certainly there and probably constituted the bulk of the crowd. Uh, the soldiers of the Antonia were always on alert during the festivals for rebel activity and troublesome messianic claimants. So I imagine this was not too hard to put together, uh, but it might have required the pre-approval in this matter by Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, as he had regional authority um, over the Roman troops stationed there. Now, 
Judas had betrayed Yeshua with a kiss and then disappears from this gospel, never to be mentioned again. Uh, in fact, aside from the mention of Peter and his failure to be faithful, none of the twelve will be mentioned by name again for the rest of the gospel. The only followers who are mentioned by name and who will play any active role will be the three Marys, Salome, and Joseph of Arimathea. Simon of Cyrene, who carried his crossbeam, uh, wasn't even a follower. Now, the high priest will never be personally named in this gospel. What We will see the names of Pilate and Barabbas. So the gospel that has up to this point focused on Yeshua and the Twelve and those to whom he has ministered has taken a sharp turn. Now, let's get to the hearing and see what happened and why. Uh, and this is starting in verse 53 of Mark chapter 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Um, leading Yeshua to the high priest is very telling because although he might conceivably serve on a bait den, which is the subject of Tractate Sanhedrin, he wouldn't be the one in charge of it. In Acts 5.12, he specifically appears to be separate from it, but able to convene it. The one in charge would be, would more likely be uh, Gamaliel the uh, Elder, or his predecessor, um, as the Talmud calls him, the Nasi, the prince or president of the Beit Din, which met in the Chamber of Hewn Stone within the temple complex. Um... Gamaliel does appear to be the Nasi when uh, they tried Peter and the other apostles. Um, he, he is either the leader or very up in the high esteem, high, the esteem of the others, as uh, Acts testifies to. The grouping of chief priests, scribes, and elders in the middle of the night are almost certainly a private Sanhedrin drawn together. You know, it's a stacked deck in order to determine if they could justify bringing him before Pilate, which was not lightly done. Um, and he was the only one who could condemn Yeshua to death. According to uh, Jerusalem Talmud um, Sanhedrin 1.1 or uh, 18a, uh, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the right to judge capital cases was withdrawn. If you remember from other teachings, the scribes were uh, paid legal retainers of whoever needed legal documents drawn up, but these wouldn't be small-town scribes whipping up contracts. These were the high-level retainers of the temple establishment. Legal experts in service of the Sadducees, very likely. Now, elders <coughs> might be Sadducees or Pharisees or neither, uh, most people were actually none of the above. They weren't Pharisees and they weren't Sadducees. Yeah, there were only perhaps 6,000 Pharisees in all of Judea and Galilee and far, far fewer Sadducees. Most people couldn't afford to be a Sadducee. Um, most Pharisees would be uh, quite unlikely to participate in such a sketchy sort of legal, legal endeavor as this. And especially those who usually sat on the formal bait den, which had very strict standards. And the Pharisees were nothing about strict about their standards and traditions and very serious. Okay. Uh, verse 54. 
and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Listen, I know Peter gets a bad rap because he was a brash young man and thought much too highly of himself. But hey, he showed up. And as per his usual bold nature, he walks right into the courtyard of the high priest. You know, after using a slaughtering knife to cut the ear off one of the serpents, uh, servants, excuse me, um, which we discussed in uh, two episodes ago in The Kiss and the Falling Away, um, he used the knife to cut off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. You know, I mean, like, dang, Peter, right? And um, he sat with the guards at the fire, and sure, it had been dark with only a full moon or nearly full to light up the scene at Gethsemane. And maybe these were entirely different guards than the ones who had arrested Yeshua, but oh, still, you have to admire his pluck, no matter how cold it was outside. Um, and this time of year, it would have been damp and cold. I mean, he was even sitting down which would have made a getaway much more challenging and especially in, you know, for all intents and purposes, a skirt. <clears throat> and this is actually the beginning of the very last Mark and Sandwich, um, where we have the statement of a situation and then a seeming change of subject before coming back to the first account. And I'll explain that as we go through. You know, in this case, we have Peter showing up, then the narrative breaks away um, for the hearing before coming back to Peter and the two different stories, the one that surrounds and the one on the inside, complement and interpret one another. We're going to see a huge difference between Peter and Yeshua here when they're both kind of on trial. And what does one do and what does the other do? So they're going to interpret one another by, um, by how different they are. Uh, verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. We talked about this last week. Uh, remember, notice it says, um, the chief priests and the whole council. Had this been a bait den, the chief priest wouldn't have even been present, and because they're mentioned separately, they do not appear to be council members. And if you would like some of their names, I can actually give you that because we, we have it from other documents. Uh, we have Annas, Ishmael ben uh, Fiabi, uh, Eliezer, and Simon ben Kamatos. These were all former high priests, uh, plus the commanders of the temple guard and the three temple treasurers. Uh, the temple operated like a small city. And uh, had quite the bureaucracy attached to it. There's a lot more done there than you could probably even imagine. The temple administration should not be considered the type of legal experts who would automatically be serving on the Beit Din. So we have them plus the whole Sanhedrin convened by Caiaphas. But here we actually have reason to give them some credit. They were seeking testimony against him but couldn't find any which means there was actually no organized attempt made to fix the case other than, and this is bad enough, obviously, uh, stacking the council with supporters. Perhaps, you know, if that's, if Rivkin's right, and I think he is. So 
Here we have to visit last week where I told you that the bait den went to great lengths in order to acquit the accused. And we know this from Tractic Sanhedrin. I mean, great lengths. It was hard to convict anyone of a death penalty offense, and they didn't even like close votes. You had to convict by more than two out of 23 or 71, depending on the nature of the accusation. I'm also going to remind you that it would be illegal to have a capital trial in the upper room of the high priest's home, which is, you know, what we're going to find out. It was uh, when we get to verse 66, it was it was in an upper room because it says Peter was below. Now, this council is seeking some degree of credibility in calling for witnesses. But what does their testimony look like and why is this a problem? Uh, 56, verse 56, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Now, we talked last week about how specific the evidence had to be and the grilling that witnesses were subjected to in a bait dean. So a very serious command is written in Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 2. If there is found among you, within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden. Um, and, and if you remember when we, when we talked about the Babylonian Talmud, uh, last week, that was the charge against Yeshua, not only sorcery, but leading um, leading Israel into idolatry. Um, and this is told to you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain, so not only true, but certain, that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones, which is what the Babylonian Talmud said happened to Yeshua. Um, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of only one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people so shall you purge the evil from your midst. And we have something related in Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother." so shall you purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. 
It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. I mean, so obviously we're not talking about anything like today <laughs> in our court system. I mean, you know, these were some very serious requirements that made it very, very hard to convict unless the evidence was absolutely overwhelming. And not only that, the witnesses had to be above reproach. And in a trial, the likes of which um, we're, we're reading about today, it should have been thrown out very, very quickly when it became apparent that these witnesses weren't, it just wasn't going to get anywhere. And if this had been a real court, if this had been a real bait den, I think it would have been just thrown out with prejudice. Um, anyway, verse 57, and some stood up and bore a false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Now, here's an interesting thing, because this accusation isn't entirely wrong or off base. However, what it required was not to not only conflate different accounts, which means you mix different sayings together as though they were all given at the same time. But some of this required them to have insider knowledge that they didn't personally have, but maybe from Judas. I don't know. And thus, the testimony is considered false, but not only that, who gave them the insider information anyway? In this gospel, three days was only ever spoken in the presence of the disciples. Something somewhat similar appears at the beginning of the gospel of John, but really there is no record of this ever being said, and some of it was never claimed in any way at all. It smacks of secondhand gossip, the kind that no doubt was spreading about this dazzling preacher and miracle worker. And when we look at the next verse, the gossip theory seems very well justified. But um, why so much gossip on this point? Well, in the Targum to Isaiah 53, 5, which is contemporary to the first century, and in Zechariah 6, 12 through 13, it is said that when Messiah comes, he will build a new temple, and Yeshua has caused a lot of speculation as to whether or not he is the Messiah. In uh, uh, Babylonian Talmud Rosh Hashanah 17a, we see this. But the heretics and the informers and the apostates, Gehenna itself will be worn away before their punishment has come to an end. And why are they punished so severely? because they stretched out their hands against God's dwelling, the temple, and everything else that is sanctified. So they want to they want to get him for speaking against the temple. Okay? Because it was their um their fervent belief that um they would be in Gehenna forever. You know, they would never experience the world to come if they um, speak against the temple, it had become a form of blasphemy, okay? Um, First-hand accounts, oh, sorry, verse 59. Yet even about this testimony, they did not agree. Even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, first-hand accounts tend to be pretty reliable, and especially in an oral culture, but that breaks down when it comes to gossip, and we have all played the old telephone game. 
If the testimony had been prearranged or firsthand, it would have had a lot more agreement between accounts. So I have to believe at this point that a Pharisee run bait den would have tossed out the charges and unanimously agreed to lash the witnesses. Certainly Gamaliel would never have tolerated such a thing. According to um, Mishnah Sanhedrin 4.1, Yeshua would have been acquitted at this point. Okay. Oh, we've only got a few more seconds here. So I hope you're seeing um, how many questions there are, really. And, and, and this isn't just this isn't just all bad or all good. It's kind of just a mess. And I'll tell you something. People and their agendas are complicated and what they will and will not do. You can never totally guarantee. Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context. This week we are going through Yeshua's trial. Uh, last week we we talked about the controversy, whether it was a uh, political council or actually the Beit Din um, that's spoken of uh, in the Mishnah. And um, that was a really interesting... Well, it was interesting for me. I don't know if you fell asleep or not, but... Uh, you want to check it out because it's not so cut and dried, right? So anyway, we are in Mark chapter 14. Uh, we're on verse 60 now, and we are in the middle of Yeshua's trial. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Now, as I mentioned last week, the high priest had no standing to do with this within the context of a first century bait din. And the question was also irrelevant because the witnesses were false. But as this most certainly is not a formal court of law, but a contrived hearing, the real agenda comes out. The high priest is determined to make a case, any case against Yeshua. And now that the evidence has proved unreliable, he must get Yeshua to incriminate himself or it's all over. And I have to say that this is a good tactic because it is incredibly rare for someone to not take an opportunity to defend themselves or to uh, set the record straight or, you know, is that just me? But it is a trap. Hey, these guys said all this stuff about you. What are they talking about here? <laughs> At this point, you know, Yeshua could have called his own witnesses, but at this point, no one really wants Peter, James, or John to testify because uh, they are forever saying the wrong thing. <laughs> and when Yeshua talked to them about these things in Mark 9 and 10 and about the destruction of the temple in Mark 13, uh, they got the entirely wrong idea because they did not understand what he was saying and were still very much devoted to the paradigm of the conquering Davidic kingly Messiah. But more than that, in honor-shame cultural dynamics, a wise man must know when to answer a question and when to shame your opponent by deeming them unworthy of an answer. 
and this was definitely one of those times. Yeshua was, for all intents and purposes, in the belly of the beast right now, in the courtyard of the home of the high priest, surrounded by his hand-picked Sanhedrin, you know, filled with his cronies instead of the members of the formal Beit Din, who would have been horrified and would have objected to this on so many levels. This is Yeshua's cup, and he has to drink it to the dregs. It is the most important thing he ever did, you know, in terms of ministry. But um, why were the charges of tearing down the temple so controversial? What's the big deal? It isn't like he could actually do it, right? Any right-thinking person would just roll their eyes and say, whatever, right? I mean, why should Yeshua even need to answer to whether he even said this or not, since it was physically impossible for any human to do, and if you don't believe me, study Second Temple architecture. It took being gutted by fire and an army to destroy it. But the temple wasn't just a temple, and the high priest wasn't just the high priest, and the leadership wasn't just the leadership. Something had happened during Hellenistic times, or perhaps before, that had really changed the definition of blasphemy against Yahweh, and that is going to weigh heavily into why Yeshua was condemned. Verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, he remained silent um, also because they couldn't understand. And for more than that, they must not understand. And we're all f- f- familiar with the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This wasn't a moment to try and get them to repent and see what the big plan is. But then Caiaphas asked a question that Yeshua needed to answer. The question I believe he'd been waiting for. The question that would condemn him, but maybe not for the reasons that you would think. He said, are you the Christ? Uh, Christos meaning anointed one. And was used in the um, Septuagint. You know, the authorized Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible hundreds of years before, which is in the Christ and Christos is not pagan, despite the rumors. It's, it's a word just like Messiah. It's, it's a, it's a generic word. It takes context to make it either pagan or whatever. Um, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now Caiaphas asked the question that everyone had been asking. Are you the Messiah or not? Do you actually think you are the son of God? And in Matthew, the question is actually presented in oath form. I adjure you by the living God, 
which would mean that Yeshua absolutely had to answer. And there are people who would promote the idea that the divine name was actually used, but this is doubtful in the extreme. You didn't have to use it in order to compel someone to answer by divine oath. And there were so many workarounds that existed in those times and still today in, in euphemisms. You know, blessed one, of course, is still in common use. But why would they ask in the first place? What has prompted the absolute necessity of this question? Well, if you remember in Mark chapter 12, we have the parable of the tenants, where the leadership is flat out accused, albeit in parable form, of killing the prophets and the Son of God, leading to the controversy later in that chapter as to the identity of the Messiah, whether or not he is actually David's son or something greater. Now, both of these claims were shot across the bow of the established authority, and although the crowds loved it, the authorities wanted to arrest him then and there because of the particular standards for blasphemy in those times. Now, Yeshua's answer is really going to give them exactly what they were looking for, and they need to get it before Pilate leaves Jerusalem at the end of the festival because he won't be back until Shavuot in a few months. Pentecost. But we can also ask, why is a Sadducee even asking about the Messiah? Well, that's actually, a, there's actually a really good reason. Now remember that this hearing is for the purpose of trying to gather evidence to make a charge stick before Pilate, who was the only one able to condemn Yeshua to death, or anyone else for that matter. A Messiah isn't simply a religious figure. It's inherently a political figure. To say that the Roman Empire was paranoid about uprisings is not too far from the truth. Um, and, and the Judeans and Galileans were a pain in their collective butt because it had become an inherently Messiah-seeking faith. And rightly so, as it turns out. They were always on the lookout for the next Maccabeans or the long-awaited Davidic Messiah who would overthrow Rome. So, the identity of any messianic claimant was a political matter that was of extreme interest to Rome. If they could make the case that Yeshua was a political threat, then they could secure his execution. But then Yeshua upped the stakes big time and really infuriated them, but it's easy to miss. Verse 62, And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, so no more avoiding the question. He said, Ego imi, I am, which is sometimes used as a divine designation, but not always so we have to be careful not to get carried away and always assume it is. But that isn't what I think made them angry, actually, because these particular guys, the, you know, Sadducee and Roman collaborators, were about power and not about defending God's honor. And it was entirely possible to use those two words without meaning anything overtly divine about them. Okay? He makes reference to the Son of Man from Daniel 7. You know, the famous and enigmatic second figure in the throne room of Yahweh, of whom it was said, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, 
nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Yeshua says that the Son of Man figure will actually be seated on that second throne. Now, Rabbi Akiva, a century later, famously commented that this was the throne of Messiah. And he got in trouble for it, too. And, and here's where it gets offensive. I mean, you know, more offensive to these guys, this council. It's really the two phrases, you will see, and coming on the clouds of heaven, that were infuriating. If you listen to my programs on Mark 13, you know that the phrase, coming with the clouds of heaven, is synonymous with divine judgment throughout the Hebrew scriptures. They will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, which is a euphemism for Yahweh, just like Blessed One is too. And they will see him coming with the clouds of heaven. Yeshua is claiming uh, more than initially meets the eye here, because he is claiming that he does and will wield power on an entirely different level than any mere man. He will have divine authority, which is what it means to be seated at the right hand of power, and he will be their judge, which is what it means to be coming with the clouds of heaven. As the angel of the Lord and as the divine presence often traveled and communicated from within a cloud during the Exodus, at Sinai, in the tabernacle, and Solomon's temple, etc., etc., so Yeshua says that he will be coming on the clouds of heaven and for the purpose of judgment, judgment authorized and justified by Yahweh himself in his role as Messiah, okay? Yeshua is claiming that he will be vindicated by Yahweh in this and in every matter. As such, he has no reason to answer the questions about the charges against him as they have no jurisdiction over him, as will later be proven through the signs and wonders at the crucifixion, the resurrection, the destruction of the temple, and through the miracles worked through his immediate followers as a sign against that generation. They will have no choice but to see it. What we see should bring repentance, right? Really, in essence, Yeshua is claiming to be the judge of a higher court. You are judging me for the moment, but I will be your judge eternally, you know. Uh, for them to sit beside Yahweh is bad enough. To claim to be sitting beside Yahweh is bad enough. Um, because Yahweh is unique. And to sit with him could be considered blasphemous. Although apocalyptic and pseudepigraphic Second Temple literature are chock full of examples of biblical figures from Adam to Moses being exalted and enthroned. Um, but when it is combined with the idea of judging the leadership, that is sedition, which is inciting rebellion and claiming equality with God, who is the only one who can judge his earthly representatives in the way claimed by Yeshua. Now, let's look at biblical and extra biblical references to seeing and... Um, and judgment that would have certainly been on their minds. Okay.
And this is Isaiah 40, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Wisdom of Solomon was written by an Alexandrian Jew during the first century BCE and was very popular. And it shows a lot about the thought processes during those times. And in Wisdom 5, verses 1 through 4, the righteous will stand with great confidence in the presence of those who have oppressed them and those who made light of their labors. When the unrighteous see them, they will be shaken with dreadful fear. They will be amazed at the unexpected salvation of the righteous. They will speak to one another in repentance and in anguish of spirit. They will groan and say, these are persons, persons whom we once held in derision and made a byword of reproach. Fools that we were, we thought that their lives were madness and that their end was without honor. Verse 63, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? Now, everyone is immediately up in arms, of course, because the high priest uh, is always forbidden to tear his clothing based on Leviticus 21.10, but really, let's be honest, the guy was just a pretender anyway. This just tells us that he is a man not in control of his anger or justice or anything, um, you know, who and who really has no standing in any way, shape, or form to be a high priest. Neither him nor his father-in-law's family. It isn't like he invalidated his high priesthood because it was never legitimate in the first place. And he wasn't wearing the, the high priest robes. Those never left the temple grounds. I know sometimes you see teachings with them. No. No, 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 no. And, and they rented them out on holidays from, for, from the Romans. So, um, you know, it was only God's mercy toward his people up to this point that caused him to honor the Yom Kippur sacrifice and the others. But we cannot forget that the Talmud tells us that for the 40 years before the destruction of the temple, uh, they were never accepted again, okay? The ribbon never turned white as it had before, and we know this from Yoma 39b. I always find it amazing how patient and merciful Yahweh is, and until the death of Yeshua, he accepted that corrupt high priesthood for the sake of his faithful. Uh, verse 64, You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now, you can only imagine, being that I am certain that none of you, and certainly not I, can imagine this level of personal ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical and authoritative affront. Okay, These are people who have been somewhat above the law for all intents and purposes. No one could move against them because they were backed by Rome and could not be removed. They claimed divine authority and undoubtedly saw their leadership as endorsed by God because he accepted their sacrifices as proven by the miracle of Yom Kippur year after year. The only thing these guys really seemed to fear was what happened to Alexander Janaeus when he purposely messed up the water pouring ceremony. Um, they knew their limits and not to mess with the temple cult, but in every other way, despite being disliked. The Sadducean high priestly family of Annas and the elders and scribes affiliated with their corrupt regime were still the most honored people in all of first century Judaism. Not due to personal excellence, but due to position and power. And if you've read my book about honor and shame, you know that honor was 
about prestige and power, not about character. You could be a skunk and still be the most honored person on the planet. Now, this family was not used to being challenged, and Caiaphas was particularly politically savvy and therefore not prone to overreacting, but he'd probably never been challenged like this in his entire life and certainly not in a room where he seemingly held all the cards and was surrounded by his peer group. And a good deal of family, all right? And Yeshua had shamed him by claiming that he was higher than Caiaphas and would be Caiaphas's judge. It couldn't hardly be anything worse for a man unaccustomed to being questioned. And he wasn't used to being shamed. So he called for a decision that he would have no right to demand in a bait den. And all of his cronies agreed, all of the people who had everything to lose by a challenge to the way things were, that he was deserving of death. They condemned him as deserving it. Although we know that they had no legal right to actually condemn him themselves and execute him. Only Pilate could do it. And now they had the charges that could be used in order to secure a conviction. If Yeshua could judge the Roman-appointed high priesthood, then it could be argued that Yeshua was claiming Roman prerogatives and could be considered a threat to Rome. This is how Rome could be persuaded to look at it, but we'll get to that when we cover chapter 15. As per the Passion predictions, Yeshua has not been condemned by... Um, a select group of Jewish leadership because they couldn't condemn him, but has instead been rejected and will be handed over to the Romans come daybreak. Uh, verse 65. And <clears throat> some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. It's... um. It's amazing how petty and brutal we can get when we think we've been shamed and challenged, isn't it? And we know from the different gospel accounts that just about every measure that every measure was used to shame Yeshua personally and publicly. Um, not because they disagreed with him, but because he had shamed the leadership. And that couldn't be allowed to stand in an honor-shame society, which is why I've always said I would hate to live in one. It would be like being in high school forever. You know, let's let's be honest. And any any Jew will tell you, <laughs> to disagree is to be Jewish, okay? they It's really not such a big, hairy deal for them. Um, there are people, they live to debate, and they'll debate, and they'll debate, and they'll debate, and they'll go out to lunch, Okay. Non-Jews, not so much, all right? So it wasn't that he was disagreeing with them because they can all survive that. They were they were big boys. It was everything else that came with it. Um, I do want you to notice something more here in this final verse that we're talking about. They're demanding that he prophesy, but he just did when he said that he would judge them. And that they would see him coming on the clouds. And um, he has been prophesying all along. 
in the three passion predictions, plus all the mini predictions, in his parables, in his testimony before them, he's been telling them all along, but the truth is threatening for them and really does announce the end of the world as they knew it. Uh, post-70 of the Common Era, uh, post-Temple, the Sadducees will have no power whatsoever, no temple, no priesthood, no power base for, for these guys. And they would fade into historical obscurity. Uh, they were spoken of by all of their contemporaries, with, you know, people like Josephus and uh, the Essenes and all later historians, shamefully. Um, they're treating Yeshua as their predecessors treated all of the prophets, and they will kill him by proxy, just as he announced in the parable of the tenants. And, you know, he didn't call down fire from heaven or curse or insult them. You know, he waited for Yahweh to vindicate him through the resurrection. And we could and should learn a lot about being that humble and trusting in God that much. But gosh, we just, we are not our master, are we? And he is remarkable. He is beyond remarkable. And, you know, that's, that's it for this week. But makes me think, you know, why I trust him is because I know what I was. And I know that he not only wants me to be more, but he's committed to making me be more like him. And he does that for us. And he keeps and keeps and keeps working on us. And he's faithful even when we are unfaithful. And so, you know, we don't despair because we know that uh, he is more capable than we are incapable. <laughs> anyway, I will... See you next week when we talk about Peter's three denials.